Welcome back to Roland Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante, and we're back. We're here to reconnect one more time to talk about mental illness and some of the ways that we can take care of it, not necessarily relying on medications alone. Now, before we get into our conversation today, Dr. Dante, I have to just make everyone clear that uh, I am not against using uh, antipsychotics and antidepressants in the right place. I, I kind of uh, kind of went a little negative on them at the last episode. So, I mean, just admittedly, so we, can... we do have a, a relatively, and it's not an anti-medicine or anti-medication spin. It's more of a there's more to the conversation than pure pharmacology. So, right. if if the context that we were speaking in. Uh, was not so predominantly medication based, the tone wouldn't be um, as such, right? It's because people don't hear the other side, we have to frame the other side. But in practicality, these are two parts of the same goal. We're trying to get people well in the broader sense, right? Exactly. We're, we're trying to get, give patients tools to heal. And from an osteopathic standpoint, that means we look at every available tool, not just a specific tool set. I, I think um, one rut we can get into is we just think about one way of going about it. Well, we need to just put our hands on everyone and pop backs and everything will be fine and dandy when we really need to look at all of the environment, including what we can do pharmacologically to help enhance the healing process. Right. For the record, we approve the use of antibiotics. <laughs> yes. Yes, when they are done in the right place and not necessarily for the cold. Right. <laughs> but, right. But for strep, it's great. But for, you know, insert random rhinovirus, it's um, making the person feel good at the expense of their immune system, which apparently people care about nowadays because reasons, but <laughs> we'll try to keep uh, the heat low on that one for now. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll leave that one well enough alone. And uh, now we we spent the last episode talking about some types of disconnections, but we've got to uh, really hit the the remainder of these these disconnections. And, and the reason why is humans are not meant to be isolated creatures. They're not the lone well. And I was going to say the lone wolf, but even wolves are not supposed to be alone. Um, they're not meant to be like a polar bear, which just hangs out all by himself all day eating seals and walruses. I mean, that sounds pretty cool, by the way, but... <laughs> it, it does. And we're pulling out Jack London on us, right? <laughs> to call right. it the wild. There you go. Uh, like uh, situation. And when we do isolate and when we do disconnect, we have illness as a result of it. Um, the next set of connect disconnections... Oh, the first of those, we don't think of very much, but we should, and that is uh, childhood trauma and disconnection caused by childhood trauma. Now, what what do I mean by childhood trauma? It could be something like uh, physical abuse or sexual abuse that uh, causes the child to disconnect from society because they expect everyone that they come in contact with to abuse them. So they'll they they in some cases will isolate themselves. Um, other types could be mental abuse uh, or emotional abuse, where you have these really 
cold parents that don't develop that that loving relationship or loss loss of a loved one we've already talked uh the how the death of a loved one can be particularly traumatic but for kids it's difficult for kids because they don't have tools to process the loss of a loved one and so recognizing this disconnection is key now there was a study and it was done in california i forget the physician who did it but he was looking he was actually an obesity physician and he was looking at a lot of his obese patients and he discovered that many of his obese patients had traumatic childhoods and there seemed to be at least a correlation maybe not a causality but a correlation between childhood trauma and obesity rates i thought that was fascinating do you remember I, hearing about that i don't recall the doctor's name but i i do remember the literature you're talking about it was a very it was a very strange but important data set to try to run around for a little while um summarizing the uh the thesis of the entire argument it's uh Every now and again, sometimes obesity is to do with a metabolic factor. Sometimes obesity is to do with environmental things, such as the food you eat, right? We had that whole discussion with Hirschberger for about yep. two or three episodes, right? Yep. But yep. sometimes, and um, we alluded to it, we alluded to it very briefly with Dr. Hirschberger. Sometimes the obesity isn't the problem. Sometimes the obesity is the adaptation. Um, in the context of this uh, mental or physical trauma thing. There is a strategy that some individuals take where, whether it's at the level of their cognition or something closer to the limbic processing, the obesity is a barrier, is a layer of protection. Whether that's right. considered metaphorically or literally is a bit ambiguous because the brain doesn't make those lines very comfortably. But if you are particularly, um, yeah, if you're particularly obese, then people don't look at you. And that was a very different way to process the pathology where what happens if the thing that makes them large is um, something designed to protect from a different problem then you go okay correct that means that we're dealing with a different type of problem here it's so it, yeah. the, the question was not how did they become obese we all knew how they became obese but the question was why did they become obese and it wasn't until you were able to address the why that the how could be solved and uh that was that was a key for him as a physician to help his patients sustainably lose weight because they would lose weight, but then they would freak out. They would become overly anxious and then overeat and get back up to their weight that they felt safe at. Right. I actually had a patient. Um, it wasn't about obesity, but it was a similar type of adopted behavior as defense mechanism. When I met her... Uh, I met her and she asked me to take care of her in the context of anxiety and she admitted to some sort of uh, traumatic events in the past. She wasn't really ready to disclose the full nature of it at the time. But ultimately, I noted that she speaks profoundly fast. Like a, like a pressured speech? Not quite pressured speech because um, it wasn't at the level of pathology. There was a clear mm -hmm. style and cadence to it. But this is a lady who is from the South, Texan, all her her whole life was only exposed to Texans speaking at the rate of a New Yorker on cocaine. 
<laughs> like like pure Manhattanite. How, how did how did you interpret that? Well, I asked her about <laughs> how it. Like, how could how could you understand her language? Well, for the record, I'm from Jersey City, so it's it's a common dialect for us. Um, yes, I yes. Act, I actively put hit the brakes on my speech patterns around here, so y'all can understand me. But <laughs> we talk fast and stuff. Yeah. So I asked her, like, look, you you talk like you're from where I'm at, and she goes, "What do you mean?" And she goes, "Well, I'm." Let me explain this. Here's how people in the South seem to speak, on average, and you carry a dialect that makes no sense with where you're from. Why do you sound like you're from where I'm from? And she talks about it for a bit, and uh, after just a little bit of poking and prodding, she eventually uh, explained that uh, after some crying, the reason that she feels like she needs to speak so fast is so that she can kind of rush through her words so nobody has to actually listen to her because she feels like she doesn't need to be listened to or she doesn't deserve to be listened to. So she tries to get in as much as she can because she doesn't feel like she's been heard. And that sounds like it's it came from her, probably her social situation, her family situation. Right, right. I'm going to be very... For out of respect for her, you know, people listen to the show. I found out patients actually find out about the show, which is lovely. But out of respect for the scenario, I'll kind of leave it at that. But ultimately, the the thesis was or is, um, she adopted a very particular speech rhythm that was completely foreign to her environment as an adaptive response to a major stressor. And when I called her out on it, she actually slowed down and she kind of she spoke not like a she didn't switch to like a southern drawl or nothing. But she dropped the need to sound like a caricature of a Brooklyn, like, you ever seen Meowth from Pokemon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she she dropped the, like, weird Bronx, Brooklyn gangster voice and just kind of spoke like a person for the rest of the visit. And that was, like, a big deal because we got to sort out her issues to some degree. And then, you know, we moved on from there and she apologized. I'm like, you don't have to apologize for it. It's, it's The reason I called her out was because of that. Yeah, it, it actually gave you some important information and tools to help her work through her trauma, right? Her emotional trauma. But the reason I bring that up is, what if the um, overeating, the whatever the behavior is, whatever the maladaptive behavior is, is the protective mechanism? How many of our patients admit that they smoke not because they actually hate smoking, but it's what gets them through the day because life sucks, and that cigarette is like the one thing they can look forward to. And that's a very different conversation from saying like, hey, smoking's bad for you, go stop. But if that cigarette is the only thing worth living for, one, their life kind of sucks. That's a real problem, not a depression problem. And two, I don't have the, I can't in good faith tell somebody to stop smoking tobacco when the only thing keeping them sane is that cigarette. I got to work on their other problems so that they have the freedom to give up the smoke. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that underlies much of what we would normally term addictive behavior, which I, I honestly think is um, a poor description of what's going on. It's It may be more maladaptive behavior, but uh, most, most drugs people are using from the streets, they're meant to help them cope. They're using, they're self-medicating to cope with life whatever stressors they may be right. and whatever they can get their hands on because, you know, it, it stinks to be out of work. It stinks to be out of home. It stinks to be in an area where you don't feel uh, valued or where you feel neglected. And so if you can 
dull those sensations with something that affects your brain, that's what that's what people will do. Um, we see that with pain patients as well, who are just trying to find some way to, to function uh, amongst all their pain. Right. I found out with um, with opiates, actually, and it didn't start off as an opiate discussion, but there was this really fascinating book written by a psychiatrist. I have it on my bookshelf, but we're recording right now, so I'm not going to step on and grab it. It was called a uh, it was that called Born to Love or Born for Love? It was written by a, a MD neuropsychiatrist just mapping out the various systems of connection that humans need, kind of like a, mm -hmm. the Lost Connections guy that we're talking about, just from, yeah, from the yeah. different end. And he was talking about, in one of his opening chapters, how the opiate receptor, you know, the receptor is there. So drug or not, it clearly has some purpose. So the question that a lot of us don't ask is, okay, so what is the... Uh, physiologic function of the opiate receptor and we say oh yeah pain relief sure but among um, other things yeah oh as i say among other things it's it's not the fa it's not the case that any time you try to relieve pain you secrete uh your endogenous opiate the endogenous as our endogenous opiate secretion seems to be a function of pain relief in a very specific environment and um for humans at least it begins with the mother-child relationship uh, specifically, he was mapping how in humans, uh, specifically, opiate secretion is a direct correlation or is directly produced by a loving interaction with the maternal figure in childhood. Right, right. that, that uh, oxytocin release in the, in the kiddo from that connection with mom that, uh, you know, you look at, was it the Romanian um, orphanages that uh, just isolated those kids and the kids uh, withered away and died because of lost, uh, no loving relationships. Right. And context for that Romanian thing for, for our listeners, uh, the kids were well fed. They were, they were actually fed. They were watered. Yep. It sounds like a plant now. They were fed. <laughs> they were given hydration. They, yeah, they were, their physical needs were taken care of from a nutritional standpoint. So their nutritional needs were met, but their emotional needs were neglected. Right. What happened was because these were all the orphaned kids status post-war, it was essentially hundreds of kids to maybe maybe a handful of AIDS. So the kids were put in the little bins, essentially, not out of neglect necessarily, but because we're also going to put a bunch of kids. There is no way to provide that much loving attention for all of them. So knowing what they did at the time, they figured at least let's feed these kids. Uh, let's at least keep them alive because if you didn't know better, you'd say that's got to be enough. But yeah, an alarming amount of them died just for that. And we know that uh, partially because, you know, we investigated the phenomenon further across time. There was also that really amazing uh, study. I forget how it was set up exactly, but there was the NICU baby, right? The the, uh, the twins. Mm -hmm. The one twin girl was solid. The other twin girl was basically dying. Uh, so she was put in NICU. She was decompensating this and the other thing. And, uh, the details are really fuzzy for me, man. It's been a solid couple of years since I read this one, but that was when they put the they put the kids together, and yeah. the one who was failing began to thrive, right? Exactly. Yeah, the the cure was quite literally a hug from your sister, <laughs> right? Um, but that made a big deal in NICU medicine because right now, like present day two thousand twenty, um, if you're in a NICU as a as a neonate as a child. One mm -hmm. of the things that has to happen is like routine. I forget. It's not tummy time. It's a, you skin know, like skin. skin. It, it yeah. was that, but it was that other thing. Like, do you remember when they would take volunteers from the community or med students to like 
basically play and nurture and hug the um, the NICU patients just so yeah. they have some yeah yes that human contact right that whole um, thing was considered inappropriate and um, borderline maliciously wrong. Oh, that that's study. right. That's right. Because the, you know they, we were worried about infection. Well, these kids are fragile, injury, all of those kinds of things. Exactly. And then, lo and behold, the data set evolves in such a way that we find out we messed up. The kids need hugs. Technically speaking, like <laughs> kids, literally speaking, kids needs hugs. And you know, with my gaggle of kids, they all, they all need hugs. They always need hugs. Yeah. <laughs> you refer them as a gaggle. Uh, yeah, a gaggle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, oh, it's so much more fun than a group <laughs> fair enough fair enough i've been i've been uh, referring to the, is it could be a flock <laughs> got it yeah the, the the small unit of children that run around my son i've been referring to them collectively as like the pack for the same reason <laughs> i think that's appropriate <laughs> given that my son likes to howl at the moon nowadays it, it I mean, <laughs> true story he started howling at the moon. I don't know where that came from. Ask my wife. Uh, probably, probably something they saw on TV. But yeah, most likely. Most yeah, likely. yeah. I, I came home to him going, "Oh," and I was like, "What the heck is happening right now?" Oh, he's probably been watching with a thousand or a hundred and one Dalmatians. A hundred one Dalmatians. They do that. He did just see that actually, like maybe two weeks ago. Well, there, there's your connection right there. <laughs> there you go. All this to say, the opiate receptor of all things is. So, yeah, we, everybody knows about oxytocin. That's like the love hormone. Not really, but close enough. Yeah. Um, but the end the end, uh, right, the end, end right, product of that whole oxytocin pathway ends up being something as basic as, op- as op- like, not opium, but endogenous opiates. Endorphins, essentially. Essentially. And um, there's an argument to be had that to some technical degree, the, the relief, the pleasure, the not the high, but the, the comfort you get from opiate abuse is at a formal level, a simulation of human love and connection. And that's much more terrifying to process than, oh, it makes me feel good. It's no, it makes me feel loved. And that's an important distinction to make. Uh, it's interesting to me that those same endorphins are released during flight or fight responses when running or exercising or doing strenuous behaviors. Uh, they keep you going despite what would normally be painful experiences to help keep you surviving. So you you could argue that endorphins are survival hormones, whether it be survival because you're feeling loved or because you're needing to escape. It's kind of an interesting situation. Right. It's a powerful system to hijack and we can simulate it via poppy seeds or the flower. You you get the idea. Not actual poppy seeds. Yeah. 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 But the the, uh, poppy plants and the poppy, uh, uh, plant in the bud. Exactly. So the childhood trauma becomes problematic, but interestingly enough, the opposite end of the lifespan also becomes difficult. This is the next connection that's lost, the loss of status and respect. And you see that especially in the um, geriatric population in the elderly, because at some point, You become old enough that you become disconnected because you can't get out so much. People stop calling you for your thoughts and opinions. Um, As you come to the end of your career, you're not capable to physically do things other people can do or your cognitive um, 
speeds slow down and your your abilities kind of not shrink but change and so you lose status and respect because all of a sudden well you're too old right we don't exactly have a good role for anybody north of 60 in this country and that is definitely a cultural thing you look at other cultures around the world and and really the native american population is is one of those cultures that really respects, at least in some cases, respects the elderly population. They they are they hold a position of honor in their societies, um, a, a place where you go and you ask the elders, "What do I do?" No matter how old they are, I, I think you you bring up a very important point that in in the United States, at least, we've lost that respect for our elders, and you see that in the way that we care for them sometimes or or don't care um, and that leads to a lot of depression in the older in older populations and you know i've had patients come in and families come in and say well my family member uh, just not doing as well not doing the same but you find out they're not they're not being involved in anything that they enjoy or family members might even say, well, we're trying to make our family member do something. And then you talk to the family member and they're like, well, I, I don't want to do that. I don't enjoy it. So their their own input in their own lives is lost. Right. They devolve into, um, and this is going to sound appropriately harsh because having seen both good and bad aging uh, from this job, a lot of elderly folks in this country evolve into... Uh, We've been watching a lot of Pokemon, by the way. So, <laughs> appropriately, yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, they either become living museum artifacts, right? Like, mm-hmm. like things that you don't really interact with meaningfully, but you kind of preserve. Like, they yeah, they, they, they stop being people. They become like almost symbols of the person they used to be, or they become something kind of like a human pet, which is, for the record, both of these are disgraceful, right? Um, if I had my choice, I'd rather be a museum artifact than a pet, I guess. But still, neither of those necessarily respect what a human, the human that's inside that body. And, and then the response is, well, let's just give them um, something to help with their uh, their dop- their dopamine or serotonin, when in reality, what they need is purpose. form of status or respect in the form of, as you said, purpose. Right. And, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to watch families respond when you say, okay, here's my prescription. We're not going to up their meds. But why don't you help them find a hobby, something they can do that doesn't require a lot of expense and doesn't lo- require a lot of physical effort, but gives them something that they enjoy? Where they I, found, can purpose. I found out the majority of ham radio operators are actually geriatric. I'm not surprised that that's that's really something that doesn't require a significant amount of physical effort, a lot of mental effort, and that working a ham radio would be a great cognitive exercise. It's also expensive as hell, man. (laughs) But yes, yes, but yeah. um, The reason I bring it up is because one, it is it is very cognitive. It is not that physical at all, really, minus the trying to lay cables down, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's a thing that keeps the mind sharp. Like it's one thing to not have to work. It's another thing to not have anything to do. Like, I wonder how many 
like at the level of some conscious, I wonder how many geriatric desires for grandchildren is because we are hardwired to need to do something and you're done being parents. You don't work anymore. What the hell am I going to do now? You know what? I can do the parenting all over again, but pregnancy sucks. You know what? Grandbabies. Grandbabies. That's where it's at. You can, you can spoil them up and send them back home. Right. But how much joy does a grandchild give to assuming they love the child grandparents? Right. And you know, it, it's interesting. I've been watching my parents as they've started to hit the geriatric age. Hi, mom and dad. Love you guys. Um, for the record, my parents seem to listen to the show too. So I guess <laughs> shout out to our parents. That's yeah, heartwarming. My, my 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 parents have gotten into the point where they're they're making a lot of things for their family. So my mom is a quilter extraordinaire. She has done some beautiful quilts, and uh, she's constantly uh, asking us, "What more quilts can I make?" And we we give her things. She's she's currently making a Texas Star Lone Star quilt for us, and we're excited for that. And then my father has busied himself in his workshop. He 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 builds blanket boxes and uh, rocking horses and all sorts of things with his hands that that require a high degree of skill, but are not as physically demanding as the log house was when he built that back in his mid forties. I can hear Appalachian Springs as you're talking for the record. <laughs> and you know, he should build, he should build a, a music box with Appalachian Spring. That would be absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. My parents live in a log cabin up in the mountains. So <laughs> there's, there is that, uh, they're out West. That's actually pretty cool, man. I I didn't know that. That's yeah. it's amazingly Americana. It's it's about as Americana as you're going to get. Um, but they've they've done that to have that sense of purpose, and I've noticed that's made all of the, all of the difference for them. They they still have their health issues as as your body begins to age. That's going to happen, but it gives them a different sense of life, and I think it's great. That's that's amazing. Great. Um, it's, it's also important for us to develop skills earlier on so that we can have those when we <laughs> retire from whatever we're doing. If, if we ever retire, I don't know, Dr. Dante, if we'll ever retire. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really bad at that idea. Um, <laughs> I'm 99% sure I'm going to work until I die. Not even because of debt or nothing like that. It's just because the nature of, I have a really bad definition of work. Like in my head, this show is part of my quote unquote job. Mm -hmm. as is the as martial well. thing the lifting thing the doc the actual doctor thing well uh, of any doctors out there i've known more do's that work into their 80s than any other physician <laughs> at least it's willing for me so yes yes you know my well, wife and i oh sorry no go ahead my, my wife and i were talking about it like um when the kids are grown and uh and they're kind of like settled into their own bit where I was like, what the hell are we going to do when we're at retirement age? And uh, it took her all of 10 seconds to go, we should go on an adventure. And I'm like, oh, what the hell do you have in mind? She goes, well, you're a doctor. I'm going to be a nurse. She's a nurse in school, by the way, guys. So mm -hmm. wish, wish her luck. Um, and the idea was like, when all said and done, we should go travel the world and do good. And I'm Doctors like, borders. yeah, I was like, all right, screw it. Let's go. Let's do this. But Let's do this. That's the retirement plan. Travel the world and help people. I'm like, we, we suck at resting. You know that, right? She goes, yeah, I know. 
resting is is when you die you, you <laughs> there's yeah that's that's how it is i mean there's a mission uh, we gotta stay on target well and and speaking of the world that that's the next connection we we talked about this a bit uh disconnection from the natural world um as we r- raise our families in these urban jungles these concrete forests there is something to be said for connecting, reconnecting with nature. And I've been uh, just briefly getting into a book called The Well-Guarded Mind. I need to really get into, into more of it. Uh, there's a thing out in England and, and elsewhere called therapeutic gardening, where folks who with mental illness are finding relief from their illness through gardening. This is actually really big in Japan, which I know is an old like meme catchphrase thing. Um, there was this really cool book I read maybe two years ago, I think it was called the nature fix by lady Florence Williams. She's a, she's a journalist. I've heard of that book, but I've not read it yet. It's, it's a short read. Um, I don't know how many pages it is because I have done 90% of my reading for the show on audible, but it took me about three or four days to get through, um, at a double speed, but it, she did this really cool thing where she was exploring how much sicker people are when they're disconnected from nature and all the various interesting studies that are independent of each other that kind of establish a thing. And in the West, there's this patchwork of data to say that, hey, nature might be good for you. But then she jumps ship to Japan, uh, uh, Korea, Singapore, and so on and so forth. And over in that side of the world, this isn't like niche. This isn't even like a, like a new idea. It's like, of, of course, it's healthy for you what the hell's wrong with you people so like in japan it's part of their medicine that you need to be exposed to this stuff like it's uh they call it like like forest bathing i think is the terminology they use it's hard to make that make sense in english i i love that 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 image yeah and forest bathing where you're you're surrounding yourself and engulfing yourself in nature and you know it, it reminds me as a kid um one thing that my parents made sure we did a lot of is we went a lot, uh, we went uh, out into the mountains quite a bit, especially out west. We spent a lot of time in the Sierra Nevadas and the Wasatch Mountains, um, the Mante LaSalle Mountains uh, in southern Utah. We did a lot of time at the national parks, and uh, you, you never forget what it feels like to be out in nature like that. Um, I remember Fourth uh, of July a couple of years back, my wife uh, and the whole family unit of us were uh, kayaking. I, I believe it, it was either whitewater. We were we were in the water on a floating device, um, <laughs> and and oars. Yes, with oars on yes. purpose. Um, in <laughs> um, in Yellowstone, and I just okay. remembered th- there was just this re- this weird majesty of just one getting past a bunch of rapids and not dying, and two, uh, just being with the whole family unit floating down uh, a river surrounded by mountains and yeah, it was 4th of July, which only makes it a little bit more American. But then like an eagle flies by and you all, we all just kind of look at that. Like, you gotta be kidding me. Like you're, you're getting a double dose of endorphins with this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're back to like Aaron Copeland stuff. <laughs> but the, there's a really amazing uh, effect from that. This is where it gets really close into the woo side of what we do. Like, Mm-hmm. This will be the first time on the show, I believe, that I mentioned that I mentioned essential oils with a straight face. So, <laughs> okay, it's, it's doable. It's doable. All right, let's let's do this. So, um, in the Nature Fix, in Miss uh, Williams's uh, book, 
she tries she she explores the literature around what the hell is happening in the woods that makes people healthy they're like is it the green is it the trees is it just not being near like is it a positive effect of nature or is it a negative effect being mitigated by not being in an urban setting because those aren't the same thing right like you can say right, that right. the woods are good for you or that the urban is bad but that does not mean the woods are good but the woods seem to be good so she's like what the hell is good about the woods and insert a bunch of japanese and korean research teams they were able to isolate at least some of what's happening it turns out bear with me on this one we're going for it the volatile oils in the various plants and leaves and things seem to produce a response in living humans and i was no, like that's, that's interesting right i was like that, that's fascinating yeah like i had to buckle down like okay i'm going down this rabbit hole let's do this i was like so all these essential oils really do have an effect and and there is some research that supports them it was but pretty cool yeah that's fascinating and you know now that you now, now that you say that there has been some discussion as to whether or not the longevity of the uh, Far Eastern and Asian populations are due to diet or uh, some other factor. And their diet's not exactly the same as some of the other long-lived populations out there. So their their diet's great and it, it contributes to it, but it could be also their connection to the natural world that is enhancing the benefits of their already healthy eating choices. I'm just saying the Shinto religion is pretty dope. I'd say so. Absolutely. And, and, you know, kind of along that line, that connection with the natural world, there's also this disconnection from a hopeful or secure future. And I, I've noticed that when you're out in nature, you you tend to be more hopeful and you feel more secure. But when you get locked into um more of a an artificial environment that hope for a secure future is problematic because you get in the quote unquote rat race you never know if your job is secure right you never know uh, if your future income or future success is secure and that disconnection can also cause issues i i think with this current election cycle and with the current um, pandemic that loss of a security in a hopeful future is driving some of what we're seeing. Now, we, we normally, we talk about the isolation, the disconnection from, from other people. Yes, for sure. But we, we, it seems to be a common focus I see on social media that both sides of the political aisle have this fear that the future is going to be insecure for their particular brand of living, their particular brand of politics, their particular stance. Right. That if the other side gets elected, then that's going to spell disaster for the losing side. And it's, it's become pretty hostile, man. And it's become hostile, and it's it's this huge social experiment that we're living through. And I hate to call it experiment, but I don't have any good term other than experiment. We'll call it an observational study in it's, real time. <laughs> definitely a, a observational study, and what's going to happen when both sides, both sides, don't seem to sense a secure future, and it seems to be magnified by this pandemic. Wow, it's it's no wonder why we have such a, a, an issue with mental illness right now. So, <laughs> that was just a realization as I'm chatting with you right now. Oh, wait a second, white bulb. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been fun these past couple months. There's actually um there's a guy out there. He was um he was a he's a green beret. He he does a bunch of like uh preparedness and like civilian like teaching civilian folks how to basically not die in case systems collapse. Really cool human from what I understand, but he was a long a couple years ago he was asking what what would be the perfect storm to wreck this particular country uh from a from a scenario based perspective and he goes well give us um civil unrest in the context of a global pandemic if that happens oh, then no. i'm pretty sure we're screwed oh no and then fast forward it's been a couple of years and um he was wildly prescient we're just kind of like god damn it why'd you have to say it out loud you just had you just had to go there, didn't you? You just had to go there. Yeah, this is way before pandemic. This is before even twenty sixteen, from what I understand. Like this is pre all this stuff. This is not even the current world we're living in was not at all um, the thing we're dealing with. This was like in theoretical con- uh, discussions. Like, what would be what would be the the code red scenario? Well, yeah, let's go with civil unrest pandemic. If ever it happens, so he, we'll he see what playing, happens. He was playing war games, and the war games simulation has. Uh, has a potential now what i'm saying a, a potential it's it's not a, a guarantee that this is going to happen i i particularly have a great hope that uh, we as a people are very resilient in many ways and we'll finally figure out that you know the other side is not the devil and and we'll come back to working with each other but it's a potential it's definitely a potential there's definitely an, there's a needle and an eye we have to get through. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> well, but, I knew, well, yeah, I go, ahead. Saying, go the, ahead. The reason this matters, like, uh, so let's be honest. This isn't a political show. Like we never, we were never built as one and we never intend to be one. But for these past couple episodes, the reality of the world outside of our voice has mattered, right? We've talked about COVID a lot these past couple episodes. Uh, today we mentioned... Uh, in passing some of this political stuff in the United States, for the record, our show, uh, we were doctors in the U.S., in case that wasn't obvious to anybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, with all the Texas references, I assumed you guys would know. So if you don't know, now you know. Now you know. Um, hooray, guns and freedom. But <laughs> the, the idea was we're talking about depression and anxiety specifically. And one of the big arguments we're making in this specific series, this three-parter we're doing, is that it's it's inappropriately simple to call depression or anxiety a pathology of serotonin when serotonin is meant as the the bean counter of what's going on in your environment like depression and anxiety properly uh, contextualized has to incorporate a robust understanding of the environment that the depressed or anxious individual or entity we're talking about rats and cats and whatnot are in because that's how we study this in you know other animals, humans are not that different. Right. And our environment right now, yeah, this is 2020 is the environment right now. And um, we are in our own kind of rat cages, if you will. This is a, if there's a weird godlike neuroscience somewhere, then this experiment sucks. Please end it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And please end it well. (laughs) Right. I don't know if there's an intergalactic version of the IRB, but damn, we need one. Uh, or or the Matrix, right? <laughs> There's red pill and a blue pill. Which one are we going to be offered? Jesus Christ! But um, basically, this prolonged Jumanji game is the environment that we're in right now, 
And that, that's important because a lot of the depression and anxiety of this year are appropriately centered around the reality of this year. So, for example, a lot of my patients haven't left their house since March because they're terrified. And right. keep in mind, look, I know with the way the statistics for COVID are, take away all of the weird political stuff. We know this thing is deadly for some and relatively benign for the majority. The issue that I have is about a third of the U.S. population is vulnerable by the definition that everybody already agreed upon. And you and I, where we work, we take care of patients with, on average, seven risk factors for death by COVID. Yes. At minimum. At minimum. And we have sick people to take care of. You add all of those together and it seems to be a synergistic effect. Right. So we take care of the folks who actually should worry. That doesn't imply that it's hell for everybody, but our population, our 9,000 plus-ish patient population that we handle, they they are actually appropriately the ones who should be very worried. All the politics and stuff aside, when you have diabetes, hypertension, by the way, you're on dialysis, you're obese, you're poor, you have no means, by the way, you don't have a car, you can't read good, insert a couple more plus heart failure. And you have a, a food desert and a resource desert as well. Right. That and that describes a pretty standard patient for us, right? Like that's that that's pretty normal. Uh, absolutely, and uh, you, you see this in academic settings all around the country. Um, when I went to school in Philly, that was our primary care clinic setting in all of our primary care clinics where we rotated with our school clinics. So, do you ever remember? Uh, do you ever read the book House of God when you became an intern? I read part of it. Yeah, cool. I'll admit I never read the damn thing. But I'll be honest. <laughs> I will admit the language got a really kind of raunchy for me, so I had to put it down. That, that's kind of what I was about to get at. Um, there was a term they used there, which was alarmingly cold, but at the same time, genuinely accurate. Like the, the book has a vaguely militaristic vibe to it with, with the raunchiness yeah. in the language, right? Yeah. Yeah. But for sure. they had two terms that really stuck with me. And uh, I, I use them in a much more polite way with my patients because, well, they're human, man. I got to respect my humans. Uh, but it was Honda and FUBAR. Yes. <laughs> and Yeah, yeah. So for all of our med students who haven't heard, uh, once you become a doctor, somebody will probably tell you to read House of God. It actually has nothing to do with religion. It's a book about right. being an intern at a hospital. Because right. the, the first right. year of being a doctor, you, you, you approach the House of God, basically. It's, the yeah. whole thing is borderline satirical. But anyway, Honda is an acronym. It uh, stands for hypertensive, obese, non-compliant, diabetic, alcoholic, and or asshole, depending mm. on who's telling the story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the idea was, oh man, our ERs are so full. God damn it, we are we're surrounded by Hondas. Um, the idea being that so many patients are like this. Now, judgment aside, that's they're sick people, man. That's what we got. And the trouble is when you have a Honda who's so far gone, they end up FUBAR, uh, which is an acronym from a different environment, which I swear a fair bit on the show, but I make it a very distinct point not to drop F-bombs. So, so yeah, the first one is the F-bomb. Yeah. Um, beyond all recognition <laughs> is the remainder of that acronym. Yeah. yeah. But our patients are in a non-comedic way that population. They're the ones who are um, genuinely sick. Forget about COVID. They're genuinely sick. Mm -hmm. 
and they are so sick that they they're afraid of the cold and the flu. Like for a lot of folks, this is new. Like it's like this is the first time I had to be afraid of like the cold. And it's like for these guys, this is a Tuesday. Right. Yeah. <laughs> every and, year. Every year. Right. And they, I got patients who have not left the house sincerely since March. They were reliant on either the the government system, like like in their town, or their loved ones and their friends to help them, uh, because they're afraid to leave because they don't know if they'll make it back the next day because of all the things that are going on. And yeah, I'm like, heavens for the uh, ability to order groceries yeah. delivered to the house. Yeah. Thank God the FCC put in this bill. If they can't put bills. What were the, whatever they call their policies. Policies. Thank you. Yeah. To not disconnect the phone line on these people. <laughs> because we had, a, we had a patient way back in April who we couldn't get a hold of because she couldn't pay the phone bill for obvious reasons in this context. And we had to appeal to get their phone line reactivated because if not for that phone line, this person will not make it maybe another month. Right. Ouch. And I mean, we talked to her uh, between you know me and some of our residents maybe twice a month just to make sure she has what she needs to survive. But she's like hoping and praying for some version of a way to be outside again because before COVID, she was still sick as hell, but she was sick with her family. She had people. Yeah, she had connections, and now she's disconnected, and that is driving her stress levels through the roof. Right. We actually do have her on antidepressants right now because there's a certain amount of inescapability for this phenomenon for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, look, if your friends are dead, literally, if your friends are dead and you're alone with no people and you're trapped waiting for a thing, at some point, I have to admit that we don't have a move in the environment to fix that because the environment is bigger than you, right? Like you can't change the ocean. Right. No, but you can change what you're doing on the ocean and you can change your relationship to the ocean. You can build a boat, you can um, build away from the shores, you can relocate some, if you have that capability. But some of these patients, like the one you described, they can't afford a boat. Right. You know, they, so, they can't afford to move away from the beach. Right. They've so got, without an, yeah. They've got a tent and they can put it up on the beach and that's about the extent of what they can do. Right. And for her, the tent happens to be a, a, uh, an antidepressant medication. So absolutely, we fully intend on discontinuing it um, when the world stops going Jumanji. But in the meantime, yeah, it's no, no shame. We gave her, I think it was, it was our Paxil or Zoloft. I have to double check, but irrelevant for this discussion. We gave her an antidepressant and she's been better off with it. But we know that when things get back good, that medicine has to fall off. And and that's an appropriate use for those medications. There, Many of them are meant for only short-term use until you can restore uh, a semblance of balance and uh, restore them to their normal foundation upon which their life is built. Uh, this is a, a great example of appropriate use for these medications because um, Often folks are using them as a crutch, not realizing that what they need is something else going on in their life so that they don't need the medication as a crutch anymore. So they're in, and their own endogenous systems can function normally so they don't have to have that boost. Right. It's kind of like um, you put a nitrous oxide uh, a bottle on your car because you want to go fast and you end up using that all the time rather than your gas. What's going to happen to your engine if you do that? You're going to burn it out eventually. 
it's not an effective way of going about it. So you turn it on for that extra boost when you're trying to win the race, but turn, turning it off and turn it on, uh, go back to your regular fuel, and that's the way your car is meant to run. I'm not going to lie. I, I missed half of what you said because Ludacris was screaming too fast, too furious in my head. <laughs> The moment you mentioned Nas, so um, um, uh, what? <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I, I'm kind of equating using Nas with using antidepressants, in that you're meant to use it for short-term use to get things done, but yes. your car still runs on gas. And uh, you, what you've done with this patient is you've given them a little bit of Nas to get them through their race with the plan that they're not going to use NOS full-time. Right. They're going to go back to their regular gas when that's appropriate. Same thing with a car. If you if you use NOS too much, you burn out the engine eventually. And then what do you do? You have to replace the engine. Basically. So, you know, all of this being said, there are, and we've, we've been in, emphasizing environmental factors that lead to disconnection and lead to mental illness. There is still a genetic component um, and a brain component. Uh, there are some genes that seem to predispose folks to uh, depressive episodes and anxiety, but we have to understand that the genetic components don't guarantee that's going to happen. It's just like diabetes, strongly genetic. Diabetes is very genetic. But if you don't ever present those genes with the environment that activates them, they never become active, right? Right. And the same thing with the genetic components leading to mental illness. In many cases, if you don't present them, these genes with the right environment, they never activate. I believe it was uh, Professor Sapolsky, uh, the, the, the Stanford neuroscience guy. Mm-hmm. He was the one who elucidated a lot of the cool literature on that. It was the Fox, was it the Fox 2 gene? Maybe it was the Fox 2 gene. Whatever. Sounds, Small details. Yeah, but there's no board exam on this. Nobody cares. But um, <laughs> And no CME yet. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere out there, a neuroscientist just like had a seizure. So I apologize. <laughs> or at least slapped his forehead or her forehead. <laughs> uh, remember way back when, when like I gaffed the date for um, when AT still... There's yeah, I, I think that was yeah. our first episode, and we yeah, had a yeah. friend of ours kind of screaming at us over the podcast. That's actually the foundation of my relationship with the guy. Uh, I, I meet him basically. Uh, it was, I think I said it was June something or other, um, and he's like screaming into the mic or something like that, like 1874. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. whatever, man. Who are you? <laughs> but now nah, we're cool. He's he, he's a great human. Um, yeah, he's very good at what he does too. We're, we're technically kind of colleagues or coworkers now. The whole lot of us, but yeah, pretty much. All, all this to say, it's it's one of the genes. Um, please correct me later, neuroscience guy who I assume is, is listening to us. But the um, this gene, what it does is, when active, it meaningfully uh, sets you up for depressogenic behavior. Like you are much more likely to be clinically depressed if this gene goes live. Um, and I make that emphasis if that gene goes live because you can inherit the gene and not have it go active and be perfectly okay. But if it goes active, chances are you're going to be in a pretty rough spot. The trigger to make it active though, get this, is traumatic memory, is traumatic experiences. Like if you have an abusive childhood, um, basically a high spike in cortisol, absence of oxytocin, et cetera, et cetera, 
mm-hmm. this gene goes active. And once it turns on, there's no turning it off again. So there's a critical window in childhood where if you hit it, it turns on. That's genetic. That's right. And that's the environmental component that activates those genes. They are there for a reason. Uh, they have an, uh, an evolutionary purpose, but they, the right situation has to be present for them to turn on. And it does, it does seem to be genetic. We don't have a good grasp on that yet from what I've seen. It's, it's limited. It's, it's, we're not completely blind, but anybody who says like we know, like with certainty, either doesn't know how much they don't know, like Dunning-Kruger effect stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or they're trying to sell you something. Because if we're <laughs> going to speak very honestly, man, um, I was actually telling this to one of the med students, an alarming amount of, of medical behavior uh, okay, so we we grade our evidence. We have um, like strong, weak evidence, so on and so forth. We also have a grading system, like uh, for recommendations, like grade A, grade B, grade C, so on and so right. forth. Right. And like the best evidence you can get is like um, meta analysis of well done studies, randomized controlled trials. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Uh, computationally, you crunch out reality and spit out data. It's a beautiful thing when you have it, but most of medicine isn't um, grade A evidence because the way to test that would be Nazi level of criminal. Yeah, it um, would be unethical. It would right. be unethical, especially if it's a treatment that has enough evidence that it works, then you give it to two populations and you, you can't just ethically not give it to one population if you know it's going to save their life. Right. Or if, if you don't know and you give it to a population and it causes irreparable harm, that's every bit as unethical as the first situation. So it's exactly. in a bit of a bind from that standpoint. I mean, it would be lovely to test the efficacy of oxygen as a life-saving substance, but, you know? Yeah, it's just like the idea you, you don't test two people with parachutes, one with a parachute and one without, and jump out of an airplane. You just, that's, the ethics of that are not even in doubt. That's absolutely not a good idea. The IRB would have a seizure. Yeah, every single one of them. Well, um, and, and once these... <laughs> Now, that all of that being said, all that being said, we know that the brain has abilities to adjust and adapt. You've heard the term, we've used the term here, neuroplasticity. And um, when the right environment or the wrong environment activates these genes, you your brain can change according to its environment. And that's the last connection that... Uh, the book talks about is this ability of the brain to adapt uh, to its environment. And you can affect how your brain is adapting to the environment. But sometimes you have um, a positive adaptation. Sometimes you have negative adaptations that, and these negative adaptations can lead to the mental illnesses that, that we've been discussing. Right. Uh, for example, we were talking about that, uh, my patient with the New Yorker speech pattern, right? Right. It's look. She was her her system was presented with a, presented with a problem. She produced a solution. The solution was to basically talk like uh, like a thing out of gangs in New York. It it maybe did its job to some degree. Was it a great adaptation? Absolutely not. But it got her past a thing. But the the this neuroplastic thing. What happens is. It's actually one of my favorite phenomena to talk about because it is literally the neurochemistry of training. Right. I mean, that's what you do every time you do something different. Uh, and, you know, we talked about it from training. You don't 
you don't do the same exercise all the time because you lose that neuroplastic response once you've developed a muscle pattern uh, and a firing pattern then you lose benefit if you don't change up your training patterns and uh, you, you lose if you don't test the brain by constantly throwing different things at it then you don't get much gain right it stops becoming training it just becomes like a ritualized it becomes habit and to be fair habit is not necessarily bad but habit by definition is non-adaptive now. It's the thing you do on automatic. It's your autopilot version of you. Right. Like y'all ever see a, remember the Adam Sandler movie? That's a first. I haven't referred to Adam Sandler yet in the show. <laughs> Which one? Click. You know, I never saw that one. I know what one you're talking about, but I never did see it. Okay. So do, uh, it's been like two decades. Do you care for spoiler on this one? Yeah, go ahead. Spoiler All right. alert. All right, just just checking. Basically, Adam Sandler has like a great life. Like he's married to Kate Beckinsale. Life is good. He has a dog, but um, he's he goes to Bed Bath and Beyond uh -oh. uh, to buy stuff. And he's like, I don't care about bed stuff and bath stuff, but what the hell is this Beyond section? So he goes into the Beyond section because <laughs> let's be real, that's a weird name for a store, guys. Right. I mean, so yeah, what's the, the Great Beyond? So and the Great Beyond, he finds Christopher Walken. Because of course. of course, because that's who you're going to find in the great beyond. I mean, who else would you find? It may be Morgan Freeman, but uh, you know that's exactly what I was thinking. But that's that hey, you know, that that was where he played God. <laughs> exactly. So Christopher Walken uh, decides to sell him an object. Oh, oh, now I remember. Adam Sandler's character goes into Bed Bath and Beyond to buy a Universal Remote because the Universal oh, Remote they have right. in a house was broken by their dog or something like that. Mm-hmm. Man, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. So um, he goes to, to the store. He buys a universal remote. And remotes, can they can they can play. They can pause. They can fast forward. They can hit the SAP button, which makes things go in Spanish. And because it's a universal remote, it, it's a remote for the universe. So he decides to like fast forward through the stuff he doesn't like. Like, uh, oh, man, I'm stuck in traffic. Let me hit the fast forward button so I can skip consciousness and just get home, you know, be with my wife, be with my kids, whatever, whatever. Um, and what ends up happening is he forgets that the remote is uh, like a self-programming, like it's a, like a learning remote, like it, it memorizes your settings. And that's what you do. Yeah. So it starts to go on autopilot itself on the things he tends to fast forward through. So every time he goes into a car, it fast forwards, which for him, that's fine. Every time he gets into a fight with his wife, it fast forwards which the first couple times made him really happy, but that meant that anytime there was conflict with his wife, he'd lose minutes of his life, hours of his life. Um, or in the context of this movie, life got so bad for him because he was just zombieing out for so much of his life that it would skip years, decades at a time, and he eventually just autopilots his way into death. Oh, ouch. Yeah, yeah, it ended really dark-like. But <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. Like it yeah, that, like he the I just showed, Yeah. He went into the great beyond himself. Exactly. Oh. But the idea was autopilot is autopilot. You're not there for that. You're not living for that. It's like I don't really pay attention anymore when I brush my teeth, or though maybe I should. But it's an automatic response. I don't waste cognitive space remembering how to brush my teeth. Um right. or tying my shoes for that matter. But if you're always an autopilot, you're never there. And if you're never there, you're not connected. And if you're not connected, you're not paying attention. You're all up in your own whatever space. 
uh, we talked about this in the last episode, the default setting for our brain is actually not happy. Like the default setting in our brain is un, like unsatisfied and looking for more. And if that's where you're living, that sucks. Yeah, that's that's from uh, the the musical Hamilton. You, I'll never be satisfied, right? Right, right, right. This, that song is now going through my head. You'll never be satisfied. You should listen to some Louis Armstrong and just you know see trees are green. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I see skies are blue, red roses too. <laughs> but you see what we're getting at here? It's there's a there's a pay attention aspect to this uh, part of life. It's um. And for for that for the record, you might pay attention and find out life sucks, and that sucks. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Until you're paying attention and finding out that life sucks, you can't change it. Right. So at this point, we have spent an hour talking about this stuff. This is great. I was expecting it to do everything in one final episode, but we we really need to do one additional episode on this. Because now we've gone through these these disconnections. We need to spend some time fleshing out how to reconnect. So I think what we ought to do, we're going back to the click remote kind of thing and put this on pause. Sounds good. <laughs> and hit, hit this up for one final big episode. The next episode is going to be really important for our listeners to give them some keys to how to go about reconnecting. Because that's that's really what we're looking for is, as the book says, a different kind of antidepressant, not truly a different kind of antidepressant. I'd say it's an, an adjunct or an additional approach that we can use to in, um, influence our environment and bring our bring our sense of wellness back to the surface where we've been hiding hiding it deep all of these years from the different disconnections. What do you think? I think this might be the first episode where we don't have a discrete part one, part two, is there? <laughs> no, we're going to miss the fun fact, but we'll get it, we'll get it next time. I mean, we talk about Adam Sandler. That's got to count for something. Oh, that counts for it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to us. We, we've really enjoyed this episode. This has been a great, great discussion. And um, join us again in a couple weeks for Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast where we talk about your body and your health and how to fix things. Bye, guys. Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast is brought to you by Dr. James Aston and Dante Paredes. We'd like to note that medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast represents the Rolling Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and OMT, and will be as evidence-based as possible. Now, comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome, but no money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agreed not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. 
Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Perez, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Please visit us on Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod or send us messages at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. Thank you.